0: This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast.
1: A lot to talk about in this budget, we're going to cover all the bases on this. So, we're going to hear from Andrea Horvath, leader of the Ontario NDP, in just a little while. Uh, Vic Fideli, uh, the uh, uh, Ontario Finance Critic, Ontario PC Finance Critic, is going to join us uh, also this hour. And uh, we're going to get some other input into this to give you wide ranging perspectives on what's going on. But to give us the government side of this, with the budget and its implications. And uh, we welcome to the program Ted McBeacon, uh, the MPP for Lancaster, Dundas, Flamborough, Westdale. And uh, Ted, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today.
2: Oh, my pleasure, Bill. Good to, good to be on.
1: An awful lot to talk about here, an awful lot of programs being offered, uh, the dental care, the, uh, the the prescription drug plan, money for hospitals. Uh, the first question I guess a lot of people have, Ted, is how are you going to pay for this?
2: Well, the economy's uh, doing well. Uh, Bill, and it's uh, it's our belief, uh, well, let, let, let me just back up a minute. You can't look over your shoulder and spot uh, people who are vulnerable or folk who need, uh, you know, a, uh, an injection of uh, of support without having a strong, healthy economy. Uh, we've been leading all G7 countries uh, in economic growth. Uh, we've had uh, uh, low unemployment, the lowest in 17 years. Uh, we're farming on all cylinders, but not everybody's uh, benefiting from that so so we believe that as the tide rises it should it should raise all all boats not not just the yachts so ours is uh, is very uh, intentionally it's a choice we made uh, a fairness budget to try to respond uh, as best we can to many of the things we've heard over the last year year and a half uh and to do it uh, in ways that uh are uh, discernibly consistent with uh, what people are telling us they need.
1: Listen, Ted, you and I go back a long way. We worked in city regional council together way back when, I sat on the social services committee. So I, I know where your head is and where your heart is when it comes to programs for those that need help in the province. But why now and why not over the last 15 years of this government? I mean, those voices are not new. They, the, and the cry out for that kind of help has been there for the last 15 years. But it was never the right time. Why is it now?
2: Well, we've been making all kinds of investments. The developmental sector, in particular, is the one that I would reference. Uh, when I was Minister of Community and Social Services, we were investing uh, 42 uh, million dollars uh, over a uh, projected three-year period. Uh, that uh, that year, um, the budget was raised to 810 million, and we've added another 600 million in this budget to move us from 42 million over three years to 1.4 billion. Over three years, so those kinds of things uh, are going to be helpful. They're going to provide uh, a form of direct funding for uh, uh, all all the folk uh, with developmental challenges at age eighteen. Well, uh, they go through that uh, that adult uh, reassessment bill. I know you know a little bit about the way the system works, so so that's happening. We've been doing uh, uh, a fair bit on the social housing side. We've got some great partners in Hamilton, uh, In and some others. Uh, so that's been working well. Uh, on the child care front, we uh, we spoke, uh, oh gosh, uh, some time ago about hundred thousand new spots. We weren't sure how we were going gonna pay for them, but uh, uh, when you have a growing economy and you're prepared to make uh, make investments, in fact, that's when you should be making investments when the economy is good. So the uh, child care uh, uh, situation is is a particular focus. A stat that that you may not have heard, uh, Bill, but it's uh, I found interesting in the budget in year 2000, uh, we were paying 15 cents of every dollar in revenue to service the provincial debt. Uh, The projection uh, this year is that that has dropped to 8.5 cents. Um, Yeah, you know, so so that is of revenue to service the debt. And that's largely because our economy is doing so well, thanks to the infrastructure investments we've made investments in post secondary education and training. You know, all of these things are coming home in very positive ways.
1: Having said that, though, you know that economies are cyclical, and uh, there is going to be an upswing uh, in, in a number of different things, and that's when a lot of these bills are going to come due, Ted. How are we going to be do- – this, this may sound great today as we sit here and talk on, on March 28th uh, in uh, the year 2018, but five years from now, and there's a different economy, and that's probably going to happen, uh, those bills do how How does the government of that day pay for this stuff?
2: Well, you know, we've got to we got to cross cross the bridges when we come to them. I mean, when was it never thus, Bill? The economies uh, economies do change. Uh, I guess the fundamental point I want to make is the time to invest is when you're doing well, um, so that uh, so that you can take uh, uh, proactively uh, uh, better care of the rainy days that uh, that that could be looming. We don't we don't have any way of, uh, of projecting that we know that the economy will go up and down but we do know right now uh, and for the last uh, oh gosh several several years ontario has been been leading the uh, of all the provinces in economic growth and uh, and uh, you know i think we're 17 year low in terms of unemployment so things are things are working well and and we have we have needs we need to make, and we've made a deliberate choice to to do that to take care of our seniors, to uh, to build a continuum uh, from uh, before JK. We know that the junior kindergarten kids are better scholars in grade one and grade two. If we can build confidence in young kids and uh, and help families, uh, uh, you know, from two and a half to into JK. Uh, that's going to augur right through to post-secondary. That's going to augur well. I met a woman the other day. Said, she said, thank goodness, you know, this uh, child care program is going to save me $17,000 uh, a year. And I said, well, thank goodness she didn't have triplets.
1: The uh, critics have been interestingly... Uh Verbose about exactly how this has gone on right now. Some are suggesting this isn't really a budget at all because I mean there's only a couple of weeks left in this session, and this is bu- a de facto a campaign platform that you've released. Uh, Chantelle Bear characterized it. I'm sure you saw in the Toronto Star today as a deathbed budget, given the numbers that uh, you are facing right now in the polls. How do you respond to that?
2: Well, um, you know, elections are about uh, spelling out priorities and. And, uh, and and the choices, and we're making our choice pretty clear. You know, Bill, you're you're kind of damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. If if we were to sit on our hands and and not move uh, uh, forward uh, to to be the change that uh, people want to see and to respond to the needs that are being articulated, then people would say, well, let's get rid of this government because they're not doing anything. I'd much rather have people say. Uh, gosh gwbj uh, you know we they, they want to do so much they're so ambitious you know this is uh, and I, and i think the the uh, proposals that we made uh, and articulated in the budget are entirely consistent with what we're hearing and have heard and uh, building on some solid foundations that we've been putting in place and and we couldn't really launch uh, launch the next stage of that until we got the economy in shape and uh, fortunately we we did we've got a 600 million dollar surplus as a result of the prudent uh, uh, financial uh, guidance of the finance minister and others. So so now the time is right now to, to make the kinds of investments that we know need to be made and and not delay it because we're fearful that six, seven, eight, nine years down the road there may be a rainy day.
1: Ted McMeekin, MPP for Ancaster, Dundas, Flamborough, Westdale. It's game on now. I guess the election's all but on. Ted, I know we'll be talking again in the future. Thanks for this today.
2: You're welcome,
0: Bill. All the best.
1: All right. Uh, listen, I want to get some opposition uh, reaction to this as well. And uh, to that end, we're pleased to welcome uh, the leader of the Ontario New Democratic Party and, of course, Hamilton MPP, Andrea Horvath. Andrea, thanks for the time. It's good to have you with us today.
3: Hey, it's my pleasure, as always,
1: Bill. Uh, Pharmacare, subsidized dental care, uh, daycare. Uh, sound familiar to you?
3: Well, it's interesting. <laughs> some people are saying this is a, a left budget, but I think it's
1: a well, Matt that's Matt left. Well, Matt Gurney in the Post today says, look, it's an NDP budget. You should vote NDP. No.
3: No, no, and yeah, exactly, that's so funny. Actually, it's a budget that left a lot of people out, um, so we, we also, we're not going to see any improvement in those children in uh, schools that uh, Elizabeth, um, uh, um, I forget her name now, isn't that awful? The uh, medical officer of health. Uh, Elizabeth Richardson Richardson was talking about the uh, other week. I mean, a $50 rebate at some point uh, for um, a dental appointment for your child is all those parents who can't afford to take their kids to the dentist. They're still not going to be able to afford it. Um, They don't have the upfront money. That's why every three minutes there's someone in an emergency ward or a doctor's office to try to get dental care. It's still going to be that way bill. I mean, it's very disappointing. So there was a lot of hype about this budget and what was coming, uh, but a lot of disappointment when you look at the details. I mean, even the child care plan. I mean, I remember the most important thing for me was to get back to work and get my income back online, right? Uh, This doesn't help those parents. I mean, it doesn't help women get back to work Um, after their mat leave is over. uh, The most expensive child care, as we all know, is infants and toddlers. They were left out of this plan. Um, You know, again, even the prescription drugs. I mean, the, the finance minister said one in two ontarians will get their prescription drugs covered i think every ontarian uh, should have their prescription drugs covered and so it, it's more of a i mean i think i would agree more with chantelle frankly uh, that uh that this is more about an attempt at kathleen Wynne, um you know to uh to pitch uh uh to voters um uh, that, uh, that they should come back to the Liberals even though most people are saying 80% of Ontarians, uh, that they're done with Kathleen Wynne and the Liberals. It, let's face it, hallway medicine is a result of the cuts that the Liberals have made. Uh, no matter how uh, the Liberals want to sp- uh, spin it, a lot of the problems that we have uh, exist after because of 15 years of Liberal government where hospitals were cut to the bone. That's why City Council had to, m- you know, had to be asked to increase the ambulance fleet. It wasn't because our, our paramedics aren't doing a good job. It's because the hospitals have too many ALC patients because the liberals haven't been investing in long-term care. Uh, it's because the liberals have been cutting the hospital budgets in the, uh, the, and the beds and the frontline staff. I mean... You know, it's, it's I think, pretty rich for the liberals to now say, oh, uh, we're going to make the change that's um, uh, that's necessary, we're going to be the change. They've been the problem, Bill. They've been the problem. They can't be the change. I,
1: I'm a little hesitant to even call this a budget. I guess technically it is because of the way it was delivered, et cetera, in the throne speech a couple of days ago. But uh, let's face it, Andrea, you might be able to vote on this budget bill, but that's going to be about it. Then they shut the lights off and you're into election mode. So all the stuff that's being talked about here is really, this is their election platform by by all extents and purposes. So when I guess the counter question to that is when do you roll yours out? when do you say okay let's see what we've got here. Let's uh you know the other party the PCs right now are well they've blown up the people's guarantee okay. with, uh, that it was already uh, there with Patrick Brown. So I don't know where they stand on this. You started to to roll some of this stuff out gear. right now. When do you get into full gear?
3: Uh, well, very shortly, and, and our platform is coming uh, very shortly. It'll have some of the things that we've already talked about in it. Uh, they'll have some other, uh, lots of other uh, things as well. We will be looking at a, a deficit as well. I'm going to be pretty straight up about that. But we're also going to look at uh, one of the big problems we continue to have, and the Liberals didn't deal with it, and that is that the most wealthy amongst us are still not paying their fair share. Uh, and, and that's got to change. I mean, last year, Toronto was designated as the child poverty capital of Canada, that's shameful, uh, and we want to make sure that those wealthiest people amongst us are helping us to, to fix that. We still have a huge gap between those at the top and the rest of us and everybody else, uh, and this budget did nothing to address that um, that issue that that gets talked about all the time. I know you've talked about it on your show. Uh, it, it, it literally gets talked about all the time. But uh, the Liberals are afraid to touch it because uh, some of their very good friends are those folks at the top. So, uh, so again, those are some of the things that we're going to address to help us pay for uh, the commitments we're making. Uh, but... It is going to be an interesting campaign, and you're right, this is more a, a platform than it is a budget uh, for the Liberals, and people are going to have a choice to make it. And, and I believe we can choose change for the better. Uh, we don't have to choose between bad and worse, Kathleen Wynne and Doug Ford. Um, there is an opportunity here to do something different in Ontario, and I elect a government that will have uh, you know, the, the people at the heart of every decision we make.
1: Here's the concern that I'm hearing from an awful lot of people, and I think there's some some legitimacy to this, Andrea, is they're looking at some of these programs and saying, "Hey, you, you know, little kids, you're going to get free daycare, and by the way, you're going to get free prescription drugs, and you're going to get." The... But you know what? When you grow up to be adults, you're going to have to pay for it because that's when the bill comes due. Uh, the, the costs here are monumental. now, when you roll yours up, and we don't have hard and fast numbers on your uh, platform as of yet. How do you mitigate that? how do you deal with that because I mean I, I understand the here and now is important to an awful lot of Ontario families, but so is the future
3: no it, it truly is it, it truly is important the future is very important and I mean this is a government that saddled the future generation with forty billion dollars of extra debt um, on the hydro one sell-off right I mean let's let our, the hydro one plan to get to uh, the rates down right so they had that twenty five percent reduction well that's going to be paid for by our children and grandchildren, um, because that's how the Liberals structured it. That's irresponsible. They should have not sold off Hydro One in the first place. Uh, but, but I hear what you're saying. So our plan will have a fiscal plan attached to it, uh, and it will show not only how we you know, pay for the promises we're making, uh, but how we make sure that they're sustainable over time. So that addresses your uh, uh, your issue as well. And I'm looking forward to the release of the, of the platform. It's coming very shortly, and people will have no uh, doubt about uh, what New Democrats have in plan in terms of, uh, of the future and, and, and a choice that... Um, that really can bring some hope back because, you know, families continue to struggle. Uh, and this budget is is not going to help them, um, you know, be able to build a better life. I mean, people still can't afford to, uh, to go to the dentist under this plan. People still can't afford the prescription drugs uh, if they're, you know, in the kind of non um, you know under over the age of 24 and under the age of 65 that's a whole swath of ontarians uh, who are going to get a couple hundred bucks maybe um, for dental and health uh, prescription drugs but that that barely covers a couple of dentist uh, uh, trips uh, in the first place so uh, again it's not a plan that really helps families on the fundamentals um, and we're looking forward to providing those uh, those kinds of changes
1: Andrea Horvath, uh, Ontario NDP leader, uh, and, of course, Hamilton MPP. I'm uh, looking forward to the discussion, the debate, and the campaign. Thanks so much for this, Andrea.
3: My pleasure, Bill. You take uh, care.
1: We'll talk again soon, I know. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon
0: on AM 900 CHML.
1: The uh, Ontario budget uh, was released. Uh, Finance Minister Charles Sousa yesterday afternoon at Queen's Park. You've heard from Ted McBeacon from the government. Andrea Horvath, leader of the Ontario NDP, was on just before the news break, and uh, now... Uh, We are pleased to welcome to the program Vic Fideli, who, of course, is the finance critic for the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party. Vic, thanks uh, for the time. Great to have you with us again. Good morning, Bill. Your thoughts about what you heard yesterday, Vic?
4: Well, uh, the people of Ontario certainly know that Kathleen Wynne can't be trusted, and we saw yesterday she'll do anything, say anything, promise anything just to cling to power. That's the bottom line.
1: Uh, lots of goodies, though. I mean, let's face it, you know, you go to any Ontario resident, Vic, and, and you know, say, hey, free dental care, uh, free prescription drugs, uh, you know, more money for hospitals, more money for schools. Uh, that sounds pretty enticing.
4: Well, there's always uh, good news in a budget, and the good news in this budget is that it's Kathleen Wynne's last budget. <laughs> the only way she's going to be able to spend for those wild uh, Promises is a yet another wild spending spree, and so she's going to raise taxes, hydro rates. Uh, she's going to raise taxes, $2 billion, and raise your hydro rates. We learned that, uh, that hardworking folks right across Ontario are going to be uh, paying more. She's done it before. She's going to do it again.
1: But, uh, the point is well taken. I mean, you know, you've been around in the legislature long enough, Vic. Uh, this is this is really the, uh, their election platform. I mean, you know, they, I guess you guys are going to debate this and vote on this, but not much else before the writ comes down.
4: No, you're absolutely right. Look, this is not a budget. This is purely an election document. That's all this is, with a, a spending spree that uh, raises taxes in election year. So, so she's raising taxes two billion dollars before an election. Can you imagine? What she's going to do if she wins another election? I mean, this is uh, the the people of Ontario are hurting by the programs that Kathleen Wynne has put in.
1: Well, the cost of them. I mean, like I say, I'm sure there are some people that are just going to jump on board because they like the idea of this. But uh, again, the word we just both used here is free, and you both we know that nothing is free in government.
4: Oh no! Look, she has set the province back for decades with her reckless policies. Uh, we have manufacturing jobs that are disappearing, businesses are leaving, hydro rates are skyrocketing, and people are uh, hurting. People are still, to this day, Bill, we've talked about it before, they're having to choose whether to heat or eat. That's the reality of the Ontario that Kathleen Wynn has created for us.
1: All right, so we don't like her plan. Um, Andrea Horvath has started to roll hers out, which actually looks very similar to what Kathleen Wynne and Charles Souza rolled out yesterday. Uh, where's the PC plan, Vic?
4: Well, you're going to see our leader, Doug Ford, uh, come out with our plan in plenty of time. The election is 70 days away, and you're going to hear loud and clear from us. It, but I do have one message, Bill. Hope and relief is on the way.
1: Okay, but there was a plan, Vic, and you remember, and I'm not going to try to recount what's happened over the last six or eight weeks, because uh, it's it's still causing nightmares, I guess, for an awful lot of people. But you are where you are today. But there was a platform called the People's uh, Guarantee, Uh, that talked about a number of different things, including a carbon tax, including a uh, slight deficit, in fact, in a number of other initiatives, which was supported by the party. Uh, Is that dead in the water? Is that in the blue box now at at Queen's Park? What are we doing now?
4: You're going to see our leader, Doug Ford, come out and talk about why we cannot afford a carbon tax in Ontario. You're going to see relief for families from their hydro rates. You're going to see lower taxes, promises to business, to support business. And it will be an absolute clear choice, Bill, an absolute clear choice. Four more years of Kathleen Wynne wasting people's money, raising their taxes and hydro rates and driving jobs out of Ontario or a Doug Ford government that's going to respect your tax dollars. Doug stands up for the little guy, and that's what he's going to do for the people of Hamilton and all the people in Ontario.
1: But from the little stuff that we have heard so far, Vic, there's a a great deal of confusion that's going on. I mean, Mr. Ford has said that he can cut $6 billion from the Ontario budget and not affect programming or staffing. And, And economists are looking at this and saying, what world are you living in? It just doesn't make any sense.
4: Well, it's funny you mention that, because uh, in the budget, uh, in the actual Liberal budget, although they don't spend a lot of time talking about it, they have a line called efficiencies. They plan on saving $1.4 billion in the first year of efficiencies. When you spread that over the four years, there's $6 billion just from this one year of efficiencies. Now, year two, add that. Year three, add that. And year four, you're at $12 billion dollars of liberal efficiency. So if they can do it, certainly Doug Ford, who knows how to do this, Doug Ford will do it. The liberals talk about it. It's in their budget, but we can't trust them.
1: Yeah, but you know that if you're going to do cuts and efficiencies, which is a euphemism for cuts in in politics. That's not a
4: euphemism for cuts at all. That is not a euphemism for cuts. If you don't think there's a few pennies on each dollar of waste in the government, then, then you don't know Doug Ford.
1: Uh, well, we don't know Doug Ford. This is a guy that served one term on city council, and that's his political experience. I get that, Vic, but I mean, you know... He's
4: a business guy. You know he's going to make Ontario open business. I get that. I get that.
1: But, but if you're going to find efficiencies, you either cut programs, you cut staff, or you sell off assets. And there aren't too many too, uh, too many other options that governments can do.
4: Well that's a good question to ask the liberals because they've got it in their budget on page 224. They've got 1.4 billion in efficiencies in one year. That spreads out to 12 billion dollars over 4 years. Well that's years.
1: that yeah but not, that's only relevant if they do it.
4: Well, it's in their budget, so if they don't do that, they have an even bigger hole in their budget.
1: Exactly, which is why we're concerned about those numbers that they put forth yesterday. Uh, well, I, I, I
4: should be concerned about anything that comes out of their mouth, because you think about the e-health, which was a billion-dollar boondoggle, which is now an $8 billion boondoggle, according to the auditor. Think about the gas plant scandal, the Presto card overruns, the, the uh, smart meter, $2 billion in smart meters. You think of all of the uh, the Pan Am Games, all of these things. They say one thing, Bill, but they do the other. They. Always end up doing the other
1: exactly, and we know all about the inefficiencies and the bad, uh, you know, management of, of assets uh, against some some very viable programs. I mean, orange ambulance is absolutely a necessity in this province. We need an air ambulance program, but it was badly administered. So was eHealth. So have so many other ones. But that's that's the uh, toothpaste out of the tube, Vic. You can't go back and do anything and get money from those programs. You got to start from here and go forward.
4: Well, that's why Doug uh, Ford has. Uh, Brought in Dr. Ruben Devlin as part of our uh, health team. He's the one who basically invented digital medicine in Ontario. So we're going to look for efficiencies through high tech. Uh, so it's not, it's not, uh, it's not the old style liberal method. This is going to be an Ontario that's open for business again, uh, bringing new revenues from new businesses. You know, think about this, Bill. Google and Amazon both just announced their first ever Canadian data center operation where they go Quebec not Ontario they went to Quebec because of our high hydro rates we have the highest hydro rates in North America so they went to Quebec this is the kind of thing that just has to stop happening Kathleen Wynne cannot be trusted with our government any further
1: when uh, the People's Guarantee was in place, Vic uh, and, and Patrick Brown was still the leader. Uh, there was a carbon tax in that plan. Was, uh, now I know Doug Ford's spoken against that. As a matter of fact, his comments yesterday at Queen's Park he talked about eliminating. We don't have a carbon tax yet here in the province, uh, although we do know that if we have if, a cap
4: and trade, that's, yeah, uh, and
1: if if the win uh, government's reelected, obviously business, that will business. continue. But uh, but where do you find the financing? Is is efficiency going to be the hallmark for for a, a PC government?
4: Well, you're going to see our, uh, our our platform out in plenty of time to, for everybody to fully understand uh, how the PC government will uh, bring prosperity back to the province of Ontario, 70 days till the election.
1: Uh, it kind of sounds like, uh, I know the Ritz Not for another few weeks, Vic, but it sort of sounds like the gloves are off at Queen's Park.
4: Well, they should be. You think of all the businesses that are hurting. You think of the families that are hurting. And yesterday, two billion dollars was added. I mean, we're we're talking about 1.8 million people in Ontario that are going to have a higher tax uh, higher taxes. You're going you're talking about tens of thousands of business who are going to be paying hundreds of millions of dollars more in taxes. This is $2 billion tax grab. That's what you can expect from Kathleen Wynne.
1: Looking forward to the uh, debate, I guess, about this anyway, and maybe whatever else is going to happen. Vic, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so oh, much for Bill. this today.
4: Always my pleasure.
1: Take care now. Vic Fidelli, thanks. of course, who is the uh, a finance critic for the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party. Joining us now to uh, give us an overview on this is Dr. Anna Esselman, Associate Professor of Political Science at uh, the University of Waterloo. Professor, thanks so much for the time. It's great to have you on the show today for having me Bill. I, I guess uh, as an opening statement, uh, Ontario voters certainly have a choice now, don't they?
5: Yeah, they certainly do. And I think that was probably the strategy of the, of the Liberals uh, for their budget to really make a stark contrast between what they will put on offer and then what the other parties will, will put on offer for the election.
1: You know, when the traditional Liberal Party, at least in the Province of Ontario, and I guess to a lesser extent even federally, has always been the middle ground. In other words, okay, you've got the NDP on the left, you've got the Conservatives on the right, uh, and and the Liberals would usually borrow a little bit from each one and, and try to craft something that uh, that middle Ontarians, that uh, the average person, if, if there is such a thing, I guess, uh, would gravitate to. They seem to be shifting an awful lot more to the left in this budget.
5: Yeah, they have. That has certainly been uh, the case over the last uh, number of years. Um, I mean, we've had some of the big policy, full-day junior kindergarten, full-day senior kindergarten, you know, investments in universities, that sort of thing that happened, you know, when when Delta McGinty was was the premier. So we can certainly point to programs where where we've seen some of that. But certainly since 2014, there's been much more of, of a movement to the left. And it's interesting because... I mean, when we had the People's Guarantee, when Patrick Brown was the leader, uh, he was also kind of bringing the party, you know, from the right and more to the center to try to occupy the ground that the liberals seem to have sort of ceded a little bit as they've they've moved more to take on uh, or to offer policies that I think a lot of NDP voters would probably find um, palatable.
1: But I heard because we talked about it extensively when the people's guarantee came out we actually had Patrick Brown in studio here to talk about it uh, an awful lot of disgruntled uh, liberal supporters from the last couple of elections that, that were tired of, of some of the things and maybe even tired of Kathleen Wynne that were looking at, at that people's guarantee and saying you know what we could do that we could be comfortable with that it's maybe a, it's not everything we want but it's it's maybe a great alternative that's gone now and we're back to polar opposites in Ontario once again
5: yeah, and I think, I mean, one role of, of political parties is to kind of shape the electorate, to offer these choices, to, um, you know, to sort of put voters or, or voters to think of themselves on either one side or the other. And and you're right, Bill. So now that we don't have the People's Guarantee, where there had been a number of, of policies that I think the, the Conservatives were hoping to grab those liberals who who may not want to be voting liberal this time around uh, we now have well we're not really sure what we have i mean we have um definitely we know that there was going to be a cut of 5.6 billion to the existing budget so that's before what has been put out now so i think what the liberals are hoping to do is to say well not only will the conservatives now cut the 5.6 billion from the budget that existed prior to what was set out yesterday. Now they're also going to take away potentially the child care promise. They're going to take away mental health initiatives. They're going to take away all these other things. I think that's what the Liberals are, are hoping to say. But all we really know is that there was going to be this $5.6 billion cut and there was going to be a balanced budget. So those are two things that we know that the Conservatives have talked about. But nothing nothing more than that. So, you know, the fact that there is... well. We'll be inter- I'll be interested to see what more will be sort of fleshed out on, on the conservative side, because I think there might be a number of Ontarians that are now going to look and say, okay, so so what more will come? And usually these platforming exercises, they take a long time. You know, The when Mike Harris with the Common Sense Revolution, I mean, they put together that platform over, you know, a couple of years and released it a year in advance of the 1995 election. So everyone was very familiar with what... What the party stood for, so, so it will be. uh, So I guess it remains to be seen. We know what the Liberals are going to stand by. That that budget will be their platform. That's what they will campaign on. And will the Conservatives just sort of stick to cuts? And you know, that this one cut in a balanced budget, or will they? Will there be more?
1: I just had an interesting discussion with Vic Fedeli, the Breakfast of Conservative Finance critic. Uh, about, I guess we're talking about definitions. I mean, because I always shudder a little bit, and when somebody says efficiencies, uh, because efficiencies means cuts. I mean, that's that's really in political terms, that's what they're talking about here, uh, and that leads to the next question: Well, what are you cutting? What programs are you cutting? And and they're all very very gray on this, so but we understand that that's exactly how it does. Any government that has been elected on the uh, on the basis of saying we're going to find efficiencies, we're going to save you money, there have to be cuts someplace. We're not getting the goods on any from anybody on this yet.
5: Yeah, not yet. And I mean, I think so. The one advantage that the NDP and the Liberals can can turn to is sort of back from you know back in the twenty fourteen election. So Tim Hudak also talked about. Um, cuts, and it ended up being the number was 100,000 public sector positions, and the other, you know, the Liberals and the NDP were kind of able to seize on that and then say, everybody knows a teacher, or everybody knows somebody who might, you know, who's in the public sector, and that that kind of um, that kind of platform item fell flat for Tim Hudak. Uh, so, Will, the question is, what kind of narrative then? Will the, the, will the Liberals and NDP develop for the Conservative parties? And I think we have an idea when uh, the Liberals now are talking sort of this line about care, not cuts. So I think they will pit, them, pit themselves in terms of, you know, we're in favor of young children, we're in favor of families, we're in favor of, of helping people with mental health issues, and the Conservatives are going to cut. So the, I think what Ontarians have to think about is, is A, um, the approach that they're taking. So it, it's interesting to note that normally we think of Liberals, but the moniker is tax and spend. Um, and even, you know, Vic Fidelity was talking about sort of some of the taxes, but really when you look at it, it's not a big increase in taxes. And in fact, the fiscal approach then will be to borrow. So the Liberals are sort of spending and borrowing and not actually putting in uh Points of revenue to, to pay for these programs. Let me ask you
1: about that, Anna, because that's going to be I, I know a major thrust of uh, the PCs' campaign when they finally get rolling on this. Uh, I, I want to try to get a read on on what's going on in the heads of of and hearts, I guess, of Ontario voters. Do they even care? I know every time this a budget comes out, whether the, it doesn't matter who the government is. The, the opposition always say the deficit, the debt, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and it's almost become white noise to us right now because governments technically t- run in deficit all the time anyway. I mean, the Harper government did for nine of the ten years they were in office. The Trudeau government's doing the same thing. The Ontario government has done this. Uh, it just goes on and on and, and according to the numbers most of us in this country are are way over our heads in debt these days so I, I don't i'm just wondering if it even resonates with people i know it's a great political talking point it's kind of an inside baseball thing but does the average ontarian really care much about it
5: uh, i mean that's a hard question i think those who i mean a lot of ontarians who pay attention to politics uh they might care about that. They might think ahead about, you know, what if the economy changes, because it's sort of coming along not too badly right now. But if there's a problem, what does that mean for, for the finances? But really, what we do know is that most Ontarians are retrospective voters. So a lot of us think back, like, are we that, that, that sort of traditional, are we better off than we were four years ago so in terms of thinking ahead there might not be that many Ontarians that are thinking about you know if the economy changes and and even if it did change I think what the Liberals would say or the NDP would say who support you know who'd be supportive of some of those policies if that happens you've got backup, right? Because we'll provide you with some dental coverage and we'll provide you with, with prescription drugs or, you know, we can, we can help you in these situations. But for the most part, um, voters really do just look back. I, am I better off than I was? And that tends to sort of help pivot with their vote. I mean, the other thing, I'll add the other thing, though, which will be an interesting dynamic in this election, is that a number of voters, or, or many voters, also base their choice on the leader, So we know that kathleen wins not that popular but we also know that doug ford's not really that popular so um when it comes down to how promises are being paid for or whether they like the platform i mean this might actually end up being more of a a policy type uh, uh, election that voters may end up having to think a little bit more about the policies because it won't necessarily be the leader that's, that's driving them to, to one party or another.
1: We, uh, we haven't had dynamic leaders in Ontario for a while, have we? I mean, Dalton McGinney was, was not the most dynamic guy and won a couple of elections. Uh, uh, John Tory, uh, uh, you know, same idea, very articulate, very bright individual, but didn't seem to resonate with an awful lot of voters. Same with Tim Hudak. Andrea Horvath's the most popular one, but she tends to run third in just about every campaign uh, once we start getting into the nitty-gritty of elections. So it's 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 pretty tough to try to get a read on exactly where we are with that. I, I know that, you know, using the term popularity in politics sounds almost trite, but it does matter.
5: Yeah, it it, it does matter. I guess it's, I mean, I guess we could call Donald Trump pretty charismatic, um, but that's not necessarily to say that they that um, it's the best person for the job. I think what we want to remember, or what we should remember, is that even leaders of parties are citizens. I mean, they, they are our fellow citizens who've gotten involved in politics and who have put themselves forward to be leader. and um, And sometimes you're not going to get the most charismatic, but for the most part, Canadians don't they haven't really worried too much about the, the charisma. I mean, you think about leaders, we think about sort of what, you know, if we like them or not. But sometimes it's okay if you don't really have an opinion. So even with Dalton McGinty, certainly in the, in the first couple of elections, most people didn't really, they are like, well, I kind of like him or I don't, I don't really think much. And that wasn't going to hurt him. I think it's, it's more problematic when, when voters really don't like you or it's helpful if they really do like you. But a lot of our leaders across the country really kind of fall in that middle range.
1: It's going to be fascinating over the next few weeks to see how this rolls out. Anna, thank you so much for the time. Great to you on the show today.
5: Great. Thanks for having me, Bill.
1: Take care. That's uh, Dr. Anna Esselman, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Waterloo. Uh, they'll start debating this budget bill in the next couple of weeks. And then, of course, uh, in May, the writ has dropped. The legislature's gone. And it's game on for the election coming up on June. You're listening to The Bill
0: Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
1: we got a lot of ground to cover on the program today. One of the things that's raising an awful lot of eyebrows internationally is what's happening with North Korea. Uh, that was a, na- a nation that pretty much stayed within itself. Uh, the leaders of those countries, uh, Kim Jong-un and Kim Jong-il, his father before him, uh, never traveled outside the country. Uh, and And, of course, now that uh, the sun is in charge and has been for the last number of years. Kim Jong-un has been characterized as that crazy dictator uh, from North Korea that's got his finger on the button and could cause World War III. Well, times are changing. The last couple of weeks we have seen a different Kim Jong-un. Uh, he seems to have morphed into an international statesman, or so it uh, would appear anyway. What's happening and what are the implications? Benoit Hardy-Shotron is a research fellow for the Raoul du Durand uh, Chair at Strategic and Diplomatic Studies in Montreal also a lecturer at the University of Montreal, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Benoit, thank you for the time. It's great to have you on the show again. Sure, happy to be there. Thank you. What's what's going on with King John on? This is not the same guy that we've seen over the last couple of years.
0: Well, look, uh, he it's it's still the same guy. It's just that there have been external situ- situations that has probably uh, compelled him to change uh, in the last few months. Certainly the turnaround that we have seen in North Korea since January 1st, when he first reached out to South Korea, has been quite surprising. But uh, the reality, Bill, is since 2017, the pressure on North Korea has been tremendous. The international community, uh, led in this case particularly by the Trump administration, has really ramped up uh, pressure and international sanctions on North Korea and i think in large part that has played a major role in uh, changing the uh the outlook or their strategic situation for North Korea and not only that but they also feel a lot more confident right now in their nuclear capability which means that they feel they can enter into negotiations uh in a position of force which they could not have done uh say just about a year ago before all these advances so that's why we're seeing that. I don't think fundamentally Kim Jong Un is any different than what we saw last year. It's just the strategic environment has changed.
1: But there's a there's a different approach, as you've mentioned, Benoit, which we find fascinating. And as we met, Kim Jong Un's trip to China, of course, was the first time that he's ever been outside the country, uh, that we're aware of, anyway. And, and it caught everybody off guard. I mean, it started off as a rumor that hey, they think maybe he was visiting China. Uh, talk to us about the implications of that. Now, we already knew that a couple of weeks before that, uh, Donald Trump leaked the story that he was going to meet uh, with the North Korean leader. But in advance of that, he goes over to China and has a discussion. And, and uh, what what are the implications? What was the strategy for, for him to do that?
0: Right, Well, there, were several, uh, impl- there are several uh, implications to his trip to China. Obviously, it's sort of a surprise in the sense that since he came to power in 2011, he has never he had never been out of North Korea, had never even met any foreign uh, leaders who came to North Korea. So I mean, in, in and of itself, the trip is quite a, a tremendous. Uh, turn of events, for sure. However, in this case, one thing we have to keep in mind is that it was the Chinese who invited North Korea. We learned this week that it was uh, on the invitation of Xi Jinping that came, came to China. Now, the reason we would have seen that is very simple. The Chinese need to pass on, or Xi Jinping needs to uh, pass on some messages to North Korea. He needs to make sure his interest, and Chinese interests are taken into account in the case of negotiations between the United States and North Korea. So that made uh, that made it very important for the Chinese not to be left on the sidelines, especially ahead of the upcoming summit between North and South Korea and North Korea and the United States. So that's what. Uh, that's what explains really uh, the, the the current the summit that we saw last week.
1: But things have not been good between those two countries the last little while, have they been? well? I mean, I know that traditionally yeah. uh, China yeah. and North Korea have been allies, but during the time of those uh, those missile tests that North Korea was doing, uh, China expressed some pretty strong displeasure about that, and and actually was looked yeah. upon as the one that was supposed to go and slap their wrist. Have they made up?
0: No, and you're you're completely right in mentioning that the last few years, and even before the last few years, I would say since 2006, relations between China and North Korea have been very tense, uh, because the Chinese have been extremely displeased, and and I would go even further and say they were exacerbated by North Korean actions, the provocations that we have seen from Kim Jong Un in the last few years, and with these ramping up and missile uh, tests, um, always. Have the potential to create or to spark a conflict in the region, and that is the last thing that the Chinese want. Any conflict would have tremendous, uh, tremendously negative implications for China, which is why relations have been bad. Now, I wouldn't call the summit, as you mentioned, as, as them making up per se. It's really uh, the Chinese uh, wanting to make sure that their interests are being kept uh, kept in line, or rather, being uh, taken into account by the North Koreans. And at the same time, North Korea and Kim Jong-un had very strong interest in meeting Xi Jinping. He wants to make sure he's got China's backing before he enters very crucial negotiations with South Korea and the United States. So on both counts, um, you know, it made, it made a lot of sense to meet, uh, but I wouldn't say that North Korea and China... Um, have made up in any way there are still tensions between the two uh, but uh, still there's a message to be found here that uh, chi- uh, North Korea is not completely alone in this before they enter negotiations with Washington and Seoul
1: so this is a two pronged thing obviously he wants to try to, to do something about relations between North Korea and China but it, it, he's also uh, from what you're saying i I get the impression he's trying to send a message to the trump administration that uh, hey I'm a world player now oh you're
0: uh, you're completely right. So that's one of the messages he's trying, to, he's trying to, uh, to send. And the other thing, too, is, strategically speaking, for North Korea, uh, these meetings um, are really make a lot of sense as far as uh, strategic ramifications. Think about it. When he meets with China, when he meets with South Korea as well, as we've seen uh, in the last few weeks, this has a very strong potential of driving a wedge between uh south korea and the united states uh, who we have to remember are very strong and important allies i mean not, america has 28 uh five hundred thousand uh sorry 28500 troops in south korea um, so for north korea to do something like this it it's very helpful for them it makes it, as a result Washington and Seoul are not on the same page exactly uh, as far as North Korea is concerned and uh, so it makes the position negotiating, negotiating position for North Korea a lot easier to play.
1: Well and that's interesting because in the past the U.S. administration, uh, not just with Obama but I guess even before him with Bush, uh, the U.S. position was simply don't do this. In other words they were ordering them and, and trying to lord over them. Uh, it sounds like uh, Kim wants to go to this table now when he finally does meet with the Trump administration as, uh, as, in his mind anyway, an equal, as a, as a nuclear power. And, and in other words, I guess, expecting something in return if he's going to do something that Trump wants.
0: No, absolutely. Like, North Korea would not enter into negotiations with the United States if it did not believe it could obtain something in return from the United States. Now, I mentioned earlier that North Korea enters these negotiations in a fairly strong position because its advances of the last few years, of the last, Twelve months really have shown that its nuclear capabilities are where North Korea wants them to be, and are a lot better than they were even 12 months ago. And for that reason, he probably thinks he can obtain some concessions from the United States. Um, probably concessions that I would say will go along the lines of reducing uh, American troops in South Korea, which may be possible for him to pain. Uh, but as far as greater nego- uh, greater concessions, as far as sanctions is concerned, like uh, for example, lifting of sanctions that is going to require uh, much greater steps on the side of North Korea. For example, uh, more than just freezing their nuclear program, it would require perhaps uh, dismantling part of their nuclear program, which I think the North Koreans are not willing to do at the moment. So that's why the negotiations are going to be very hard to obtain any advances, I think, on
1: either side. All right, but you've talked to us. uh, I know you've studied the North Korean situation for a long time now. Uh, when, when when Kim goes out there to China as he did and, and says that yeah he's a firm supporter in de-escalation do you buy that um,
0: I buy that but to only to a certain extent now the last uh, year as I mentioned earlier because of the extreme tensions we have seen and the sanctions that have been imposed on North Korea as as a as a result of these have really Compelled North, North Korean, uh, the North Korean regime, to try to lower tensions, to try to uh, alleviate the pressure, because pressure really has been tremendous. Especially because in the last few months, China has, for the very first time, started to implement sanctions, sanctions in a very rigorous fashion, and that is very that is a very new development in and of itself. So when Kim Jong Un talks about de-escalating tensions, he is probably truthful uh, on that front. But when he's talking about denuclearization itself, this is where I think we have to remain quite skeptical. I don't think North Korean fundamental intentions or goals have changed, uh, nor the nuclear program and the missile program are both way too important strategically for North Korea for them to just uh, simply do away with them, even if the United States were to give them uh, sufficient security guarantees. So yes, he wants to de-escalate. Does he want to denuclearize? I do not think so
1: at the moment. Do you get the impression that that both China and the United States are looking at this guy with that same attitude that they don't trust anything he says?
0: Um, you mean that they don't that they don't trust Kim Jong Un?
1: Yeah, I mean because he's made promises yeah. in the past, Benoit, and, and you know they've they've gone by the wayside.
0: Oh, you're you're completely right. That's and that's one of the reasons why I've been uh, I've been cautioning people uh, who have been a little too optimistic in the last few months. Uh, Let's just look at history a little bit. North Korea has said a few times in the past that they were willing to talk about denuclearization. It happened for the first time in 1994 when Jimmy Carter went to North Korea and struck a last-minute deal with uh, the then-leader Kim Il-sung. It happened as well in the early 2000s. It happened between 2003 and 2009 uh, during the six-party talks. Uh, talks that involve South Korea, North Korea, Russia, China, uh, Japan, and the United States, and these talks never led to anything substantial. If there were agreements during during that time, these agreements went by the wayside very quickly. So yes, you're very right in pointing that, uh, pointing the fact that um, North Korea has said before they were willing to denuclearize. It never led to anything. So for that reason, uh, the United States and Japan are rightly concerned about whether or not they can. Uh, they can believe what uh, comes out uh, of the any sort of declaration that comes out of Pyongyang.
1: It was just a couple of months ago, Benoit, that, uh, that there was a real concern uh, about North Korea's nuclear capability and the fact that they could reach North American soil with their missiles. Uh, there was equal concern that uh, the Trump administration might even consider uh, an invasion of some kind or some sort of military incursion over right. there. Uh, a preemptive right. strike, as it were. Uh, is that past? is that Is that concern past now?
0: Uh, for the moment, I think it is passed. And as a matter of fact, uh, the concerns about possible uh, Trump strikes on North Korea, we're so, uh, were so intense in 2017 that this is what in large part led to the Chinese to finally put pressure on North Korea. Uh, we, one thing we've learned in the last few months is in 2017, Trump was a lot closer to authorizing strikes on North Korea than what's commonly believed. Uh, and for that reason, uh, the Chinese who've always the one thing really that they that they fear is instability at their borders. So, fearing the fact that Trump was perhaps going to hit the, uh, the hit North Korea. He, that is why she decided to basically ramp up pressure on North Korea and implement the, the these international sanctions, which is which is something I mentioned earlier. Um, so absolutely uh recently with the with the rapprochement between North and South Korea and now possibly between North Korea and United States, I think we can we can safely say that for the time being, uh, the fear of the United States or American strikes on North Korea, which would almost certainly lead to a larger larger scale conflict are off the table. But the moment that North Korea comes back on, on on its word, the moment it starts committing provocations again, and that is the issue, the possible preventive strikes on North Korea will be right back on the table.
1: Meanwhile, well, we're going to leave it there for now, but uh, we'll certainly keep an eye on this. Thanks so much for the day. Uh, this today really a pleasure to talk with you again. Take care.
0: Yeah, thanks for
1: having me, Bill. Thanks. Benoit Hardy-Shotron, of course, from the University of Montreal. The
0: Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.